guys, welcome back to Cinema Snorkel. It's me, your host, Carlin Leander, and I'm on with my co-host, Casey Leander. It is I. You're not even going to contest the fact that I called you my co-host? Uh, co-host, last time I checked, is an equal, and so we are both co-hosts. <laughs> but Thank I'm not you. a co-host. I'm the host, and you're the co-host. Uh, yeah, That's well, what I said. you misspoke then. We're both co-hosts. <laughs> some of us are equal, but some of us are a little more equal. You know what I'm talking about? Slightly more equal. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. I'm more equal than anyone else. Um, Case, uh, wow. We watched, we're finally going to review a movie that I've put off for a while. Well, we both kind of put it off. Um, but, but it just swept all the awards of all the categories that it was in, basically. Tell us what movie we're going to review today. Today, we're going to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. Across the multiverse. In thousands of Evelyns. You can access all of the memories, their emotions, even the skills. He's waiting in the wings. The universe. He speaks of senseless things. Is so much bigger than you and me. Than you realize. Of all the places I could be. I just want to be here with you. Remember our mission concerning the fate of every single world of our infinite multiverse. There is no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Okay, so tell me, what, what'd you think? You just watched it? What are your thoughts? Yeah. I totally disrespected this movie that won nine Oscar awards because I watched it on my iPad <gasps> on the drive back from Atlanta to where we live in Chattanooga. <laughs> so it's a two hour drive and I'm watching it on an iPad. As you know, the sunlight comes through the windows and like hits the screen and it, and we were like going, going through going trees. On. So it was like, da, 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 da. so at one point I like put my iPad at the bottom of the the floor and I like leaned down to watch it. So I just want to say a heartfelt apology to the filmmakers <laughs> because yeah. that's disrespectful and I know it, but it was literally my only window. I meant to download it even for my flight. It didn't download. And so that that's the lengths. Also, I'd like to clarify, you weren't driving while you were watching this movie on the floor, right? Oh, oh no, I was. I was. I was driving the vehicle and I had it by the brakes. So that way I knew like I could always yeah. I could always hit the brakes. You well, know? at least you were looking at the brakes while you're driving. That's that's a, that's a good way to drive. <laughs> you have to look at the brakes so that you know when to use them. <laughs> well, at least it just means you were paying more attention to what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I- <laughs> Uh, I'm not even going to clarify. I'm not even going to clarify that it was my wife driving. So we'll just leave it at that. So it's funny, though, because this is like a major blockbuster and it blew everyone's minds all year and then blew everyone's minds at the awards. But it was actually like a surprisingly low budget film. And a lot of the techniques that they used were like old school uh, Photoshop and cut and paste and props. And it was shot in basically two locations. They were shot in, a, in an abandoned office building, and almost all the scenes happen in that building. And then a couple times they're in an alleyway, and then a couple times they're in Chinatown. But they use, like, the same locations to represent multiple places again and again and again. That's amazing. I love that, because you don't need a big budget to tell a good story. No! This movie was really well written and really well acted. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. you know, if you've seen any of the buzz about the Oscars, you know that Ki Hoi Kwan won after his, you know 
acting debut as an, an 11 year old or 12 year old in Indiana Jones. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And the Goonies, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michelle Yeoh. I mean, they're all incredible actors. I think in my mind, that was the strength of this film is that um, it's a small cast, but they they really just sunk into these characters. And I think they portrayed feelings and dynamics that so many people resonated with on like the deepest level. Like, I think they yeah. just broke through to what so many people are struggling with. Yeah, it's a very um, human feeling film. Yeah. They really landed some of those emotional punches. So. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's really good. And you know, there was a lot of cringe in this film. <laughs> I can I can personally say that the cringe almost outweighed <laughs> the beauty of it. Not entirely, but and I know they're doing it on purpose. But gosh, it still was like, oh no. Yeah, it just it <laughs> made me feel kind of icky. <laughs> Did it make you feel icky? Just the hot dog hands. Yeah, that that was so uh... weird. That every time that came up, I was like, oh gosh. But for all that, oh yeah, and it's important to do our, our disclaimer here that what we're doing on Cinema Snorkel is not saying whether or not you should watch this with your kids. Yeah. You know, in fact, please don't. But uh, that's not, <laughs> that's <laughs> not the purpose to. of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. We want to examine this as a piece of culture and as a piece of art and talk about what is the movie, what's our best interpretation of what it's trying to say. Yeah. And sometimes it's going to include things that, you know, we, we disagree with as Christians. Yeah, absolutely. And in everything, uh, there's discernment called for. So that's not a new concept within Christianity. You know, what element of culture is, you know, going too far, et cetera, et cetera. And Christians have and will can debate this for all time. So there's our disclaimer. For all that, I will say one recurring gag made me genuinely laugh out loud every time it came up. <laughs> And it was the raccoonui, raccoon, raccoonui, raccoon. Wait, say it. Raccoonui, raccoonui, raccoonui. I, la- I mean, genuinely, I was like, that's comedy gold. It was so funny when they're like singing and doing that little like. <laughs> it's like a live action version. I even looked up. You can listen to the song they sing. They like recorded a whole thing of it. Oh my god. Oh man. Comedy gold. Yeah, that's an example of culture just spinning off of itself and like something so specific that you have to be alive at this time in order to fully appreciate what that is. What about you? Did What did you like? Was there anything in particular that you really enjoyed? Yeah, I really liked Wayman. I thought he was a really cool character. Um, a really great example of masculinity that was sensitive and caring and kind and... Um, Really just, I thought he was really cool. It's funny, someone pointed out to me that his character doesn't change at all. Like, he doesn't have a character Hmm. arc. But the movie ends up kind of conforming its moral message to Wayman's perspective on the world. And basically saying, Hmm. like, he's been getting it right from the beginning. And Evelyn kind of becomes aware to it. And then her breakthrough is what eventually reaches her daughter Joy and then they both have this breakthrough and wow. then they're reunited as a family which I thought was great I loved classy Wayman classy Wayman where he's like he's so suave leaning up against the ex- the exposed brick <laughs> yeah and he's like I know it sounds silly but I've always wondered you know if in some other life we could be like yes this is this dude's best version of himself yeah. it's so cool it is but I like regular Wayman too because he's like even from the very beginning, that angry customer's like, Evelyn, guess the, what machine ate my 20 and didn't give me the change back. And by the end of his little story arc, Wayman has him dancing and goofing off and like has turned a negative customer into like this happy fun moment. And I just thought, you yeah. see him 
um, demonstrating the power of his positivity literally from the beginning. It just doesn't work on Evelyn. Absolutely. <laughs> but it works on everyone else. He gets an extension for their tax audit by bringing her cookies. That's amazing. Yeah, even that first time when they, you know, she's like, get it to me by 6 p.m. Yeah. She's like, thank you for the cookies. Also. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Good observation. He's also behind the googly eyes, which I feel personally as though that could be significant. The googly eyes. Maybe even symbolic. But Carlin, let's, uh, you know, let's not talk about the themes before we say we're going to talk about the themes. You want to talk about the themes? Let's talk about the themes. So Casey, what do you think the googly eyes mean? Well, I mean, we're just going right for it. <laughs> you know, I've done this before. I've actually, I think this is a really helpful, uh, like, strategy. Like, when I don't understand what's going on in a movie, I just write a list of everything that grabbed my attention, and I ask the question, silly or significant? I love it. And there's also a um, another category, which is just, like, implicit or, like, world building. Like, it, it serves to, to, like, make the set dressing better. Sure, sure. You know, and depending on who the filmmaker is, you know, some movies, there's entire lines of dialogue written that don't mean anything. They're just there to like sound as though this is a spy movie. Right. (laughs) One classic example is when they're like amplify, amplify, you know, like in a in an old school, like 24 or something. They're like looking at security footage and they're always like amplify, amplify. Like that's not a real term. (laughs) So it's just there to make it sound like, oh, yeah, we're in a high tech scenario where they can they have this thing they can do where they amplify. We could take a video camera that was installed in the 90s and magically make it crystalline clear like high definition with our amazing technology it almost could ruin sci-fi for you because like if you try to attach every word they say to something real in the universe that will destroy most sci-fi for you because sometimes the the writers are just putting like space sounding jargon out there anyway so so there's another category but yeah do you know about um jj abrams concept the mystery box do tell okay enlighten me so jj abrams who has written like basically every sci-fi or action adventure that we know and love in the modern era. He did the script for like some of the newer Star Wars ones and he did like Mission Impossible, you know, those kinds of action-y, popcorn-y kind of movies. And he has this concept called the mystery box where you withhold the the understanding of what's going on from the audience. So even if the characters know what's going on or they might not, um, but just the question of, wait, we don't understand why is this guy waking up in a park without any memory or you just don't know why anything's happening. And that keeps the audience guessing. And so it's a kind of a cool technique because then you get a big reveal moment at the end. But I've heard it criticized because those movies are only watchable once. Because once you know what the mystery is, the the movie loses hmm. it loses all of its mystique. And whatever Mm. was keeping you watching is gone. But you don't have to use a mystery box to make a good movie. And I feel like this movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once, does a good job. Because from the beginning, you know what's going on. Like, you you get a lot of exposition close to the beginning about, okay, who is Alpha Raymond? Who is uh, Jobu Topaki? We know pretty quickly who she is, where she comes from, and what her endgame is. And the power of the movie is in the emotional journey that the characters go on. Yeah. And that's rewatchable. Yeah. Yes. And the concepts that they decided to try to take a bite out of are as massive and as old as humanity, mm-hmm. you know, itself. So they they really are, they're tackling, in essence, I think, existentialism and existential questions. You know, no, nothing less than what is the meaning of life? And they're trying yeah. to do that by examining everything 
everywhere all at once. So the scale of what they are trying to do here made my head spin. But I see what you're saying. It's the subject matter. They don't have a MacGuffin they're trying to find, per se. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the googly eyes, silly or significant? What do you, I just want to hear what you think first. Yeah. Well, significant. I mean, not significant to the plot or anything, but they accent, I think, they accent Wayman's worldview. Yes. And then they use, so they establish that he uses googly eyes to kind of be silly. And at first you're like, oh my gosh, this guy is so annoying. Like he's not taking anything seriously. Um, then you find out uh, Alpha Wayman is actually like a total boss. And then by the end of the movie, Evelyn has put a googly eye on her forehead, kind of like a third eye moment. Yeah. Um, but also, I think the googly eyes, they represent um, kind of silly, wacky positivity, but they also, I think, symbolize awareness. Interesting. And um, her eyes be kind of come open to, okay, this is actually coming to me right now as I'm saying it. I think she becomes awake to joy and her suffering. Hmm. And when she does that, it causes her to reach out towards joy instead of what she's been doing her whole life, which is shutting down conversation mm. and, and moving away from joy and, and not addressing the pain, not addressing the difficult things. She's like, sorry, too busy. Don't have time to help you. Um, and then I think the ultimate theme being letting joy walk away. Hmm. Um, and by the end, she decides not to do that. That's so interesting. Yeah, and one of the ways that we can unlock the themes of movies really easily is just follow the character arc of individual characters and just ask, what are the filmmakers yeah. trying to tell us about this character? So I loved how you summed up Evelyn's character arc. What about, let's, let's look at Joy's character arc. Where does she start and where does she end up? So we find out really quick, Joy in an alternate universe is just a daughter with a lot of potential. And Evelyn this other Evelyn pushes her to the brink and then her mind cracks, right? She like enters into all universes at once and then she becomes like this transcendent being. Um, but there's something wrong with her. But a depressed transcendent being. Yes. In seeing every possible universe, Joy has concluded that everything is meaningless then. Yeah. And she has some killer lines like, not a single moment will go by without every other universe screaming for your attention. It's a lifetime of contradictions and confusions and only a few specks of time where anything actually makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And then she has that whole thing where she's like trying to convince her mom essentially that life is meaningless yeah. because Joy just wants someone to see her, hmm. right? And almost this whole existential project is about getting her mom to gaze into the abyss with her yeah, for a second. Just yeah. mom, look at the donut of meaninglessness, right? Because yeah. she's like, I put everything on an everything bagel. And you know what I concluded is that it's all meaningless. And all she wants, it seems, is to be seen in that depression yeah. that she's entered where everything seems like it's it's completely pointless. So Joy's like calling out for recognition for someone to affirm her struggling and her suffering well but but get this okay so she says uh when i put everything on a bagel and i realized the truth nothing matters um but then she says isn't it freeing all the uh pressure all the guilt all the pain you feel for not living up to your potential goes away mm. what do you think about that because evelyn i think she tries it for a little bit 
Yeah, she does, doesn't she? There's that alternate universe where they're playing out what would happen. And she like murders her husband. Yes. Got that shard of glass. And so there's one alternate universe where apparently she kills Wayman. Yeah, it's very similar to the one, the real one that we're in. Um, but yeah, she has this moment where she starts. Yeah. She starts accessing. Her, her strategy is I have to break myself the same way that joy was broken. Like I have to expand my consciousness by doing everything. And that's when she like att- attains yeah. ultimate potential. But what do you think that does to her as a character? Yeah, she starts down that journey. She starts distracted. And I like how they're playing with the dynamics within, uh, you know, a Chinese family. Uh, It seems like that's a very real phenomenon where the parents and grandparents are way conservative. And so Evelyn is very conservative, but she's also busy and stressed out and isn't really seeing all the people around her very well. And so part of this whole crazy adventure is that it forces her to deal with the anguish that her daughter is already undergoing. It might not Mm -hmm. be like a a metaverse type of world ending anguish, but her daughter is really suffering and she feels like she's suffering alone. And there's that moment where Evelyn wants to say something kind. You can tell she goes up to the car and the only thing that comes out of her mouth is you're getting fat. You should eat more healthy. Right. And I wonder actually like, it's so hard. Yeah. how many moms, uh, that felt like a humanizing moment for moms who actually care about their kids, but they don't know how to relate with them and they feel stuck and pressed for time, right? And so in being forced to deal with Joy's deep sorrow and the seeming meaninglessness of everything, I like what you said. It's like, then then she sees her truly, which is all that Joy wanted in the first place. But Evelyn doesn't stop Hmm. there. And I think that's significant. Having gazed into the abyss, Evelyn actually chooses to love her daughter and to uh, and to love her well enough in one sense to let her go, but also love her well enough to pursue her. Mm, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm confused about that a little bit. Is the ultimate uh, resolution there that she lets her go or is it ultimately that she chose to pursue her instead of just berating her and ignoring well, her? Well, I, I think you're exactly on to it because um, I watched this movie twice and the first time I didn't catch this, but there's a quick moment where Evelyn, so she's kind of embraced the Jobu Tupaki way of doing things and is violent and, and she's so mean to Wayman, right? She's like, you should have seen what my life could have been without you. And you're just like, oh, that just crushes you. That cuts deep. Um, But then she has this moment where she looks at her dad when she left home. That was a split when she left home and her dad just lets her go. And she says, dad, how could you let me go so easily? And then she decides she's not going to do that to Joy. And then when Joy goes into the bagel and you see, I actually feel like the most obvious depiction of this is when the rock version rolls off the cliff. Yeah. And Evelyn's rock with eyeballs on it sees it and throws herself after her. And just grabs her. And then you have that moment where she's just holding her and is like, I'm not going to let you go. Yeah. And I think there is the element of like, yeah, this parental pressure of overwhelming pressure that Evelyn's put on joy that Evelyn experienced from her father. But it's not really the pressure. It's it's the abandonment that causes the most pain. It's the Hmm. unwillingness to enter into the suffering, just like you were saying. And I think that wasn't obvious to me on my first watching that Joy, her ultimate desire is just for her mom to be there with her, to like not be alone in her suffering. I think, and I don't even know if the movie quite knows this. I think they hit it and I, but I don't know if it's intentional. I think what the film is trying to say is when you put everything on a bagel, 
you realize that nothing matters. And if nothing matters, then you're free from guilt and pressure. Yes. But you're also free from love and personhood and mm. meaning. Says that? Or is that what you're saying? No, I think the movie says that because joy is so depressed. Yeah. And the bagel is really just an analogy for looking at the sum total of life hmm. and asking what the purpose is. And it's enjoys sort of cynical worldview. It's so stupid. It's just like a bagel. Like, I can't think of anything dumber than that. But yeah, like the sum total of everything. Yeah, I just put it on a bagel because what the heck, you know? Isn't it stupid? Look at how stupid right. it She's is like me. bursting guys' heads into confetti and like, hmm. Because she's bored. And I think the movie is actually, you know, the word nihilist has been thrown around a lot about this movie. And I think it dips into the abyss yeah. a little bit. But yeah. this movie might be very postmodern. It might be very existentialist. But it is not nihilist huh. in the sense that it truly concludes that nothing matters. Nihilism is looking at the existential question, what is ultimately meaningful, and concluding nothing and therefore kind of do whatever you want. Nothing actually does matter. It's like the stone cold, we're just going to live as though that is actually true. Existentialism, as it were, sort of takes the last detour before nihilism and says, you know what, everything is meaningless, but we're going to act as though it is meaningful and we're going to choose life. So thinkers mm. like Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, they all were existentialists who concluded, you know, I think it was Camus who said, the only real question at the end of the day is whether or not to kill oneself. Ooh. But he concluded, you shouldn't. <laughs> I, I don't know if he would have put it that way. I, what he concluded <laughs> is, you should leap towards meaning and therefore construct your own meaning out of life and live as though life were meaningful, even though it's ultimately meaningless. So he wasn't saying, hey, everybody go kill yourself. He was highlighting that the core question of life is whether or not there's any meaning. And the existentialist twist is, even though there's not, we need to act as though there is. In a nutshell, that's a layman's version. Help me understand the very last thing, I think, I, maybe in the movie, but Joy finally comes back to her mom and they're hugging and then they start laughing and it's like all's well with the yeah. universe, right? And, and Joy says, do you want to do your party? And Evelyn says, we can do whatever we want. Nothing matters. Wow. How do you interpret that line? You know, I'll be honest, I miss that line. Um, I think... Is that because your iPad was on the floor of your car? While you <laughs> no, it's because it? I slammed into a trailer in front of me as I was trying to drive with my feet looking at the brakes. So anyway, um, but no, that yeah. aside, yeah. I didn't, Easy to see how you'd miss it. I don't know why I missed that line, but yeah, the movie has kind of a zany sloppiness to it where... I, they are saying something real, but also I, the brand of the movie is like embracing the chaos of it. Like, yes, even the hot dog nasty world is like somehow like deep and sweet, you know, we like play Claire de Lune with your feet, you know, while because our hands are hot dog, like, and all kinds of like cringy, like sexual connotations to that. It was like, oh my gosh, I hate this. But the movie's kind of like, even though it's a little sloppy, we're embracing the chaos. So my gut reaction about that last line is that they're taking the existentialist project then and saying, okay, yeah, we can forge meaning then. Life is meaningful if we love each other, right? They essentially say kindness, this is Wayman's philosophy, kindness is what matters. I don't yeah. know why, I don't know how, but just be kind. Can we just be kind? Right. That seems to speak to people. Totally. Well, it's absolutely the central zeitgeist of our modern age. That mm. is the dominant worldview 
to the point where it's assumed uh, by mm. most people that life is a chaotic, you know, bowl of meaninglessness. Right. And our main goal is to just choose kindness and love because, because there's no real because it's just, it's just that somehow we feel like it's better that way. And that's crazy and doesn't make sense, but we should still do it. Right. And, and it, it won all these Oscars. Totally. So it works for people for some Totally. Reason. I'm not going to pretend to uh, like dive into the process behind the Oscars. I think there's all kinds of different uh, elements to that. That Wait, you're not talk questioning. About, um, tell me you're not questioning the authenticity of the Oscars as a meter for judging <gasps> no, which oh, movies no. are best. No, no, I, I would never. I would never. <laughs> they nail it. And what they, as far as I'm concerned, what they the say Academy, goes. So. Casey, the Academy is the powers. <laughs> the Academy. They know what's good for us. Yeah, no. In fact, right now, can we thank the Academy, please? I would like to thank the Academy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I know that what I just said was a big thing about existentialist philosophy and was less directly tied to the movie, but I see the parallel as being so clear that that framework is what makes sense of this movie to me. Thinking about the ways that the existentialist philosophers gazed at the meaninglessness of life and then concluded, even though it doesn't make sense, you just have to choose goodness and kindness um, just because, to me... That seems like the framework this movie is using. And thinking about it that way actually is yeah. it, the movie kind of clicked into place when I when it felt like I recognized what they were doing. So if if someone asked you, do you think that everything everywhere all at once is a nihilist movie, you would say what? I would say they're grappling with the meaninglessness of life, uh -huh. but they don't quite take the nihilist uh, bottom line. They get off at that last exit before nihilism, which is existentialism. How would it was a nihilist film? That's a good question. I think a real nihilist film would end with Joy's version of reality being the ultimate and being true. And the movie concludes with Evelyn kind of doing whatever, what Joy's doing or not. But we all know that whatever she's doing doesn't matter. So they throw themselves into the everything bagel and then they just totally. keep doing chaotic, silly, random stuff for no reason. Forever. But the reason why it doesn't go there is because this pain, this deep, deep pain inside of joy needs resolution. That's why the plot happens. That's why she seeks Evelyn out. That's why any of this matters. That's why we watched this movie, because we want to see joy's pain have an answer. Yes. And they contradict the nihilist impulse by things actually progressing as a story over the course of the movie. Okay. So when they're having that final fight and they're dialoguing about, you know, sometimes I lose, sometimes I win, sometimes we tie. What they're saying is, look, there's a universe in which every single version of this yeah. happens. But what they're showing the audience is Joy moving towards catharsis with her mom. Huh. So it's not a nihilist conclusion. It's actually a, a deeply hopeful conclusion that I think points people to answers deeper than nihilism or existentialism can give yeah. us. And they, they do that consciously, but they do it nonetheless. They don't land on nihilism. They don't follow the logical conclusion. And so they kind of contradict themselves. But that's part of what existentialism does. Existentialism's like, we know we're breaking the laws of logic here, but who cares? You know, live your life. C'est la vie, you know, carpe diem, YOLO. Those are all, those are all variations. Even of the fact that they're acknowledging <laughs> that there are laws of knowledge or that they're even bothering to talk about any of yes. it at all 
contradicts. Yeah, this is pictured for me when the tax lady shows up and is like, I'm seizing your store right now. This is going down. And Wayman somehow has a conversation with her and finagles another day or something. He gets more time. Evelyn's like, wait, this could work. And Joy turns around and goes, this is a statistical inevitability. Yeah, don't worry about it. In some other universe, this didn't happen. So don't get that excited. Like It's a cynical viewpoint. Even everything good is just a statistical inevitability. But there's a meta plot happening at yeah. the same time where sort of the metaverse Joy is interacting with the metaverse Evelyn and trying to struggle mm. and reach that catharsis. And that's actually happening. The movie does not dial it out one level back again and say, but guess what? There's a meta metaverse where they don't, re you know, it's like, it's just going to leave right. it at like one level dialed back on the multiverse in order to tell a plot. And you know what? They did that for a reason, because if they didn't, this movie would suck and it would not have won nine Oscars. They needed to tell a story because stories have beginnings, middle and yeah. end. And they actually told a very compelling story in which something happens and something matters. And we all intuitively know that that's true. Where they get muddy, and this is just where modern philosophy gets muddy, is that their process shouldn't lead to that conclusion. They're, they have to break logic to get there. And so it doesn't matter. Well, they have to, they have to break nihilism. They can't be faithful true. to nihilism to do that. Okay, so Casey, what do you think, what do you think matters in the world of the film? I love that question. I think that's so good. Um, I think family matters. I think catharsis matters. I think seeing the joy in small things like putting googly eyes on silly little things matters. On that whole fight up the stairwell, they're showing us that there's joy to be found. And for each person, rather than kick their butts and make them hurt, Evelyn shows them just a little glimpse of happiness and meaning. And she's pointing to the meaning of small things. Mm. Now, I, I take grievous exception to one of those, and it won't be hard for our listeners to guess, which is the BDSM one. Uh, that's just very yeah. much, though, in line with our modern culture, where we say sex is trivial, sex doesn't matter. So that's an implicit, it's assumed by the film. I disagree on the strongest terms. I think sex does matter, because I think a Christian worldview is on the same page about uh, inflicting harm during sex, even if it's, you know, supposedly consensual. Anyway, we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But suffice it to say that I think where the movie lands is like, it's a little bit of chaos. Like, Hey, whatever floats your boat, you can, you can choose to do whatever you want and find meaning in it. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's deeply, deeply meaningful. And so they show us these little vignettes of people like the raccoon cooking, you know, we want a happy ending and that's that guy's story. And so there it is. We land on that being meaningful and happy. So, so in a, in a sense, they want to end by like forcing these two seemingly disconnected theses together. That nothing matters, but also yeah. the tiny trivial things matter. They're trying to say both of those things. They're trying to say both. And like everyone in our wacky, godless, postmodern world, there's not a logical reason for why that is. So you just got to force those two together. But they, but they do tip their hand. For example, and this is what I was going to say, if, hmm. if there's a limit to the wackiness, even in a movie that's trying to say, there's no limit to how wacky we're going to do, you know, like hot dog hands that are weirdly sexual, we're fine with that, you know, yeah. even like something like kind of wholesome, kind of uncanny valley, like the raccoon <laughs> on his head. Like, yeah, we're fine with that. This movie is that wacky. But there are moral boundaries on what they're willing to show. For example, Evelyn didn't grant one of the security guards his wish of torturing puppies for fun. 
Right. And the camera didn't zoom in on him being so happy doing that, right? It's actually saying, no, there is goodness and there is evil in the world. And within the boundaries of goodness, there's a million things to love and enjoy. The only thing the modern world does is just draw those lines somewhere different than, you know, historic Christian morality. So there's no multiverse where goodness is badness and badness is goodness. Right. In this, in this film. Exactly. Although in a nihilistic worldview, there would be. That's right. Because kindness and cruelty are meaningless terms. But in this worldview, we're meant to feel as though there is such a thing as real kindness. And that's why Wang's desperate plea for kindness resonates with us. And the movie's not just saying, yeah, it does resonate, but it, it, there's no reason why it should. The movie's actually subtly, you know, under the table, slipping you a little note that says, actually, kindness does matter. Yeah, yeah. right. Because it's kind of popular to talk about nihilism. Like, I just read an article uh, yesterday called Sunny Nihilism. And it was talking about how nihilism doesn't necessarily have to leave you feeling depressed or chaotic. And it doesn't mean that you're going to start living your life as an immoral person. Like you can still believe everything is meaningless and be a good person. And I I kept reading this article waiting for him to like realize the contradiction. But the, the examples he kept pointing to are you're standing in a supermarket and you're reading a can for lima beans. And the tagline is something like, find wholeness or something like we're trying to eke meaning out of our consumeristic experiences and i realized i think this person is reacting against uh consumerism and not really the existence of true meaning in the universe if you find that unsatisfying first of all if you find it satisfying now it's only a matter of time before you find it unsatisfying you can only look at cans of lima beans for so long you know, forge meaning out of the lima beans, you know, like lima beans, like not everything is equally meaningful. Uh, and the truth is, and I'm a passionate (laughs) advocate of this belief. We discover meaning. We do not create meaning. We naturally discover meaningful things in the world. Hmm. So anyone who claims nihilism, I think you're onto it, Carlin. My impression is that we're actually asking other questions And what we're willing to do is break logic and break reason in our pursuit of answers to those questions, because at the end of the day, we kind of want it our way. And I think Joy's cynical line where she said, doesn't it feel good to know that you're not on the hook for making nothing of your life? I think things like that are what ultimately drive our self-destructive quest to break logic and reason and our drive towards the bottom. We want it our way, and we also want to be able to find meaning in the world, but we have to pick one or the other. If there's meaning in the world, then we have to live as though there are things that are true outside of ourselves, Mm. and we have to bring ourselves into alignment with those truths. If there's no meaning in the world, then we're allowed to do whatever we want, but we can't pretend like any of it really matters. So clearly this movie doesn't agree with that. This movie says some things matter. And like you said, family. I actually think that is the the heartbeat of this movie. And I think this is why it resonates so strongly because it so strongly says yeah, that the thing right. that matters actually is relationships. Because Joy... It's really a story about her relationship with Wayman, Joy, and uh, Gong Gong. Gong Gong. Her dad. Yeah. Which you kind of forget he's there. (laughs) But then when she mentions that thing about like, Dad, how did you let me go so easily? Yeah. I, I just think for Joy, like her deep pain 
isn't about meaninglessness, actually. It's about this pressure. Yeah. Um, that she feels, and and she can't quite put her finger on what it is, but there's this overwhelming pressure, like a like a boulder sitting on her shoulders, that she isn't good enough. She hasn't done enough things. Um, so I want to ask you a question. So Evelyn, we're we're meant to understand that Evelyn in in our universe, the one that we're watching, is like the the worst version of her. It's the version where she's living her worst life. And Wayman is kind of goofy and silly in this. But then he shows up as Alpha Wayman and you realize like, whoa, there's all this Matrix style skills that they can access and become awesome. I got so excited feeling like Evelyn, her life is boring and meaningless and sad. But here comes an amazing version of her husband offering her a chance to be meaningful. And he says in the elevator, every disappointment, every frustration in your life has led you to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it. That's a meaning statement. That's giving her a purpose Absolutely. to her life. And I wanted to like, <laughs> like, let's go, Evelyn, like yeah. level up. Yeah. Um, Reach your potential. Yeah. But that seems to contradict what we're maybe meant to land in the end which is that potential are you supposed to just let it go like does it not matter that she hasn't made anything of her life she could have been a singer she could have been a kung fu master she could have been all these amazing things but she's become none of them how are we meant to reconcile that yeah like the pressure of all the things that you didn't do with your life are we meant to just be like it doesn't matter that's such a good question, Carlin. I mean, and if I were to boil it down to two questions that I see this movie asking is the first one is, does anything matter in a universe where everything can happen? Mm-hmm. Does and or, or even more simply, does anything matter? <laughs> right? Right. The second question is, how are we supposed to deal with the fact? What's our best strategy for dealing with that existential crisis of meaninglessness? And you see each character create a a way to deal with it. So in everyday life, Evelyn is trying to like hold all the different strands together and like do like uh, do the right thing and maybe try all these different things that don't work out. She's just kind of failing. Grandpa is like rigid and conservative and Joy is like lashing out looking for affirmation. And then the multiverse amplifies those answers times a mm. million. So Alpha Grandpa is like, uh-huh. we will impose order on this chaos. That's like a oh, very, almost Confucian Chinese, like old school conservative answer to the question, the, the classic timeless human question of, of meaninglessness. Yeah. So the grandpa says, we have to stand up to the juju tabooties or whatever. If this Evelyn has to kill this joy, just do it. It's yeah. worth it. Imagine how I feel. It's the sacrifice, but I'm willing to do it to, to let there be order on a chaotic world, right? Alpha Wayman is doing what you just described, where he's trying to activate the the hero in Evelyn. We're kind of rooting for him because he's like baseline hero's journey, but like he's like awesome. Yeah. He's like goodness. He's nobility. He's what we want in a hero. Um, yeah. And then Joy in the metaverse, in the multiverse, has turned into this agent of cynicism and nihilism and despair. And so mm-hmm. what they're doing is zooming in the lens on how each person is dealing with that existential anguish and how does evelyn deal with it because it feels like of all the different versions of her they're doing something amazing and she's doing nothing i think where the movie lands is when wayman says you know i know that you've broken my heart yet again but in another world 
I would have enjoyed doing laundry and taxes with you. Boy, doesn't that hit? <laughs> Something about that lands. Yeah. Like, it's very true. Actually, big, important, powerful things matter, but also mundane, simple things like doing laundry and taxes with your spouse in a faithful, huh. good, kind-hearted way. That really matters too. And I think the movie's trying, I think that that is where the, the movie lands. Like whatever your lot is, whatever your story ends up being, there is meaning in it. That is similar to what they say at the end. We can do whatever we want. Nothing matters. So the only thing to focus on, the only thing that exists is right now. Yes. But Carlin, I think what that's inevitably leading us to is our Christian perspective on on this question, on those two questions of yeah. is anything meaningful and how are we to respond given the, the crisis of meaninglessness we feel. I would love mm-hmm. to get into that question because I think our faith resolves it in a way that people are starving for and that Christians yeah. don't always articulate. But to me, it's been one of the most powerful, beautiful elements of following Jesus. Casey, talk talk to the person who feels absolutely despair right now because they're like, like how Joy says, we're going to find some new amazing discovery in the universe that's going to remind us what absolute tiny pieces of crap we are. Yeah. She doesn't say crap. Where I land, Carlin, is this. Without God, everything is meaningless. If there is no God, then doing great big things, being famous, being an actress, living in a multiverse where you can experience all these incredible dynamic things, ultimately, it's meaningless. It leads to boredom, cynicism, and inevitably, nihilism. See, I was hmm. earlier I said that the, um, the existentialists take that last off-ramp before true nihilism, and they just say, you know what, it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to live as though there's goodness and happiness. But the truth is... It's not really an exit ramp. It's a fake one. You think you're getting off, but unless you find a better foundation for things being meaningful, it's going to merge you right back onto that freeway headed straight for nihilism. It sounds like that article. Do you remember you read the article that said how to, whatever it was, it was like, try gaslighting yourself. Like, just tell yourself lies. <laughs> yeah, wiki That'll make how. you feel better. There's a wiki how article on like how to, how to live a meaningful life. And it literally one step was try gaslighting yourself into believing that there's meaning in an otherwise meaningless universe. That's so, so sad. It's so desperate. stupid, to be honest. That's all you have. If you don't have any reason, then you got to come up with a reason. There can't not be a reason. You yes. can't live with that. Without God, everything is meaningless. But Carlin, the flip side of this, and this is the picture scripture paints, is that with God, everything is meaningful. Hmm. I think of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 10, where he is teaching a huge group of people. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Hmm. And then a little bit later in the chapter, he says this, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly, I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. And Jesus also calls people to extraordinary acts. There's the rich young ruler who comes up and says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus looks at him and the Bible says he, he knew what was in his heart. And so he said, all right, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, 
and come follow me. <laughs> so, so there's a huge act that Jesus is calling some people to, well, really, all of us. If we're going to treat him like he is God, it might cost us a lot. But also, he's validating the minutia of life in a world created by God, where God sees everything that's happened. A bird falls out of a tree. God cares. He notices. Someone gives a cup of cold water to a thirsty kid. (laughs) Like God cares. And so sometimes I think about like uh, McDonald's. Like I'm a huge fan of McDonald's, uh, especially breakfast. And if you get an egg McMuffin, (laughs) and I've thought about going through the drive-thru and, um, you know, sometimes the egg McMuffin is a little like slidey. Like they just kind of slopped it Uh together and like, here you go, whatever. But every once in a while, I've gotten an egg McMuffin that was, that's been perfect. The symmetry of, of the ingredients line up and the, the wrapping's uh-huh. wrapped so tight and it's a little hot. I hate to tell you this, Casey. That is a statistical inevitability, <laughs> but keep going. Exactly. No, right. But when I think of what does the creator God think of the McDonald's worker who took the time to put the sausage and stuff perfectly symmetrically and wrap it so tight and neat, does God say, ah, it's just an egg McMuffin, whatever? You know, now the Queen of England's dinner, that I care about. No, like God is so much better and bigger than that. You know what I mean? Like, I think the creator of everything looks at that and is filled with joy. He says, yes, order, symmetry, sustenance. Excellence. Excellence, even in McDonald's. This is what I created people to do. Put the pickle in the middle. Put the right amount of ketchup on it. That is going to delight the next customer who you don't even know. That is a mighty act in the kingdom of God if it's done for the right reasons, if it's done as as an act of worship to the creator God who fills our lungs with breath. So this brings me back to this angle that I've been thinking about from this movie. Okay, Evelyn, because I, when I see the potential that she hasn't lived up to, I get kind of sad and I feel the pressure And maybe this is a reflection of my own feelings about my life, where I think of all the things that I could have done if I had just, ugh. And there's a, there's kind of a sadness I feel about the things that I haven't done. Yeah. And it's, and it's not a sadness. And I think this is because you and I were blessed with like the gold standard of parents that gushed out to us the sense of unconditional love. Like whether we Mm. won or lost, succeeded or failed or forgot all our homework at home or whatever, they just would always constantly remind us how much they loved us. And I think that was a blessing and an anomaly because a lot of people had parents that had conditional love for them, or at least that's what was communicated to them. Mm. Like I have, I have a handful of friends that are jumping to my mind right now. And I think of the way that their parents would Um, judge them or uh, compare them or reject them for things that that are trivial and that breaks my heart because it it weighs so heavy on a kid to feel like their performance is what's going to earn them love and I truly think that's why this movie resonates because so many people that's their lived reality that if I can't please my my parents yeah and they can't even say why or what or where. They just feel the pressure. Yeah. And it feels like, what can I possibly do? Because I can't do it. <laughs> and I just, yeah. it crack. It, all that can happen is that person cracks under the pressure. And then they sink into this chaotic version of themselves. Yeah. That's like, well, I guess I just have to burn everything down. Because I can't yeah. earn enough. What do you think Christianity has to say 
to that. And I think that's the central tension that Christianity resolves. We come to God expecting an angry tyrant who's mad at us because we've broken his world. And if we're being honest, we can't actually say that we haven't broken his world in some ways. Hmm. And, and I know a lot of folks right now, because this is in vogue, they just try to say, well, there is no God. I haven't broken anything. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be messed up. We all mess up. They're getting right. one half of the equation right, but what they end up doing in the process is denying that there's any intrinsic meaning to the world in the first place, that there is right. such a thing as right and wrong, that, that uh, we are designed as creatures. We're not just blobs of Play-Doh, like... There are good and bad things for human beings to do. There are good and bad things for us to do with our bodies. Good and bad ways to treat our neighbor. Like, it's by design. So in our rush to to free ourselves from what we feel is the judgment of both our conscience uh-huh. and the God of the universe who we've betrayed, we've turned on him, we've broken his universe, we're quick to throw out morality in general because we feel it's crushing weight. So there's one half of people Mm. that I see taking that strategy. There's another half who, like Evelyn, like Grandpa, lean in on the legalism. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you will not budge. We're going to do this right. And they're like, they're like the old man in the sea, if you've ever read that book, where he's He's old and his body's failing and he's out there fishing. He catches a huge fish that could get him out of debt. And as he's rowing back to land, sharks keep coming and biting off big chunks of this fish he caught. And he's like, just trying to hold it all together, man. Like I'm stressed out, I'm losing and it's all going to pop, but I won't let myself fail. Yeah. And what Jesus does is he comes in and he breaks those two answers in favor of the truth. And the truth is that goodness does exist. We are all God's enemies, and yet he loves us anyways. And he's choosing Mm. to offer us a chance to be reconciled with him. Hmm. And as George MacDonald said, to be right with God is to be right with the universe, one with the almighty maker of joy, who loves everything and hates nothing but selfishness. Wow. So the, the thing that Jesus says then, in essence, is you can be made right with the universe. You can be reconciled to your heavenly father, the eternal creator who made you, who in, designed you, but you have to come to him on his terms. But what we discover even in doing that, in surrendering to that, is that his terms are gentle. Hmm. They're not the harsh master of legalism that we're afraid of. They're actually a loving parent who like Evelyn, and this is where I lo- I actually loved where the movie landed with this. Evelyn turns into a loving parent hmm. who will not accept her daughter's uh, attempt at nihilism. She doesn't buy it. And at one point she goes, stop calling me Evelyn. I am your mother. Oh, right? that was a great line. That's beautiful yeah. because that means something. To be a mother is not just a abstract Play-Doh concept that we invented. It actually means the person who gave birth to you. Yeah. Mothers are real. You shouldn't call your mother by her first name. You should call her mom. Yeah. Right? That's how it should be. And so Evelyn won't let Joy get away with just doing whatever she wants, which is self-destructive, and they both know it. Yeah. Joy is like wanting to hurdle herself off the cliff to resolve that anguish. Evelyn won't let her, but by the same token, Evelyn lets down her legalism and chooses to understand Joy first mm. and to listen to her and to just let her get it all out and to hug her. And and God, through Jesus, does that for us. Wow. Um, you know Dr. Henry Cloud, who wrote yes. Boundaries? He's my favorite. Everyone go listen to the Dr. Cloud show. Um, but I was just listening to 
an episode where he was talking about how to build self-confidence. He was talking about how if you are aware of the ways in which you're failing and you're judging yourself for those things, you will never, ever grow. Like when we see a little baby take its first step and then immediately fall down, we don't go, dude, can you just get it together? Like for Pull real? Pull it together, baby. You're, you're, it's walking, okay? It's not that hard. <laughs> um, we're, Nobody's like that. You're like, yay, you did it. You're amazing. Let's try it again. And you just create this sense of fun and safety. And he said the only way to grow is practice in the absence of judgment. Hmm. And that's what we create for babies instinctively. We make it fun. If they fall down, we just clap our hands and like laugh it off and try again. And then eventually the baby isn't thinking about, am I good or am I bad? Am I succeeding or am I failing? They're just enjoying the moment and they're growing. Yeah. And, and it's funny because (laughs) I read this in Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland. Once again, the Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. Hmm. Like humans, because of sin, we have this attitude towards God that assumes he's like a judgmental parent. That he's with his arms folded across his chest, annoyed with us, ignoring us, waiting for us to get it right. Hmm. Um, but that is not the picture that we get of God yeah. in scripture. Like in Exodus 34, y- this is like a super f- famous verse and it's quoted a bunch of times throughout the New Testament because it's the first time that God kind of describes himself. And he, he so he's revealing himself to Moses. And this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The way God chooses to describe himself, and I've heard it described as the spring-loaded trajectory of his heart, is towards love, compassion, yeah, and acceptance. That doesn't mean that he is squishy about sin and that his holiness isn't real, but his attitudes towards you is so warm he just wants to embrace you and so if you're one of those people that feels like no matter what you do you're never going to be enough please hear that god is not disappointed with you all he wants from you is for you to turn towards him and to come to him and he'll save you. He'll rescue you. And he'll tell you it's all yeah. going to be okay. It's surrender though, right? Like your posture has to be, okay, you're God and I'm not. Yeah. But he's safe. He's safe to come to like that. Yeah, exactly. And that's what Evelyn does for Joy eventually. she's She does start out as the mom who's like pushing her daughter, pushing her daughter. We're going to unlock your potential like you know, we're not going to rest until you achieve this massive multiversal version of yourself. But then she turns into the mom who just wants to be with her daughter and just wants to spend time with her. So what do we do with all that missed potential? Because there's a sense in which the, the things that we haven't done, it's an evil in the world. And I mean evil in the sense that it is, it, it exists because of sin, nature. Like, if sin wasn't in the world, 
we would have no barriers to achieving our ultimate potential, climbing the highest mountains, making the ultimate craft pasta, uh, like pushing our bodies to perfection, like all these things. And, and God created a world that's good. And so when we don't participate in those things, it's an evil. It's not shame on you. How dare you not do those things? But then what about all the things that we don't do that are an evil? Like, what about all the people that have been in suffering and you could have given them a kind word, but you didn't? Or all the times where you withheld something from someone that you knew that could have made their life so much better, like an apology or that's a serious weight. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. I think what you're saying so good, Carlin, in that you want Evelyn to not start a bunch of random projects and never finish them. You want to see her commit to something and make something of her life, like spend her potential to create yeah. something actual, right? Yes. And yes. I think your intuition there is like, yeah, it's it's bad that in a fallen world, we don't always use our potential. We waste it. Yes. And can I give you one more quick example of that? In the show, The Last of Us, I don't know you're, if you're watching it or not. Haven't seen it. But there's one episode where this couple, it's, it's a gay couple, and he has stockpiled all this food and energy and everything he could possibly need to survive the apocalypse. And he sets up his little house, and then he meets this guy, and they fall in love, and they spend the rest of their life hoarding their belongings and living in this little paradise and the show is meant to be like, oh, how sweet. They love each other and that's all they need. But I'm sitting here going, there's an entire world of men, women, and children who are literally dying because they don't have medicine. They don't have food. They don't have protection. And these guys, their ultimate purpose is just to just snuggle in their little house and have a happy little life and then eventually kill themselves. And the rest of the world is, is like falling to pieces. And they actually could reach out yeah, and save people and protect people, but they don't do that. Yeah. That's why we want heroes is because they choose to do the difficult thing that's the right thing to do. Yes. And again, yes. it refutes existentialism. It just does. We know there's a right and a wrong thing to do. Even this movie knows there's a right and a wrong thing to do. It's moral calculus is different than obviously a Christian perspective, but right. There's a reason why torturing puppies isn't the right thing to do. Even in this movie, there's a reason why when, uh, Evelyn says, you want a divorce? We made a sacred promise. Okay, yeah, no, there is a right and a wrong way to do things. So we can't reject that. I was going to say, though, Carlin, because this movie made me think about it. The Bible gives us more than just one category to think about the way that the world is. It actually, it can hmm. hold the sadness we feel at our missed potential with, alongside of, the beauty of limitations. Hmm. Right? Because the truth is, we are not meant to be everything, everywhere, all at once. Hmm. We actually can't. And it's only the weird delusion of our modern world, like the internet, really, that mm -hmm. makes us think we could do anything and be anything. We're actually, we can't. We're very limited. We're creatures. Mm -hmm. We're bound by space and time and our own bodies, right? And, and whatever technology we can come up with. But if we forget our limitations... We're setting ourselves up for misery and stress and exhaustion, right? Yeah. So the Bible actually gives us three categories. One is sin. Sin is bad things that we do that are morally wrong. Mm -hmm. Things that we should do, like you're saying with the Last of Us example, I think that's so good. Things that we should do but don't do. Things that we know we shouldn't do but we do anyway because we want to, doggone it, 
right? Right. God won't let people continue to practice injustice forever. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's a moral imperative to go to him and surrender because he's willing to accept your surrender. Right. So put up the white flag and join his team. You're on the wrong team. Yeah. You're a bad guy, right? <laughs> Until you surrender to God, we're all the bad guy in some ways. Yeah. Even if, if our intentions, quote unquote, are good. That's right. But there's also brokenness. Brokenness is sometimes the result mm-hmm. of other people's sin. So if you grew up in a home where your parents uh, mistreated you, right, you're going to experience lots of trauma, and that's not your fault. Mm-hmm. We really can mm-hmm. be victims in this world. We can, we can experience brokenness mm-hmm. through no fault of our own, mm-hmm. or I would put disease mm-hmm. in that category. Our bodies break down. It's not how it's supposed to be. You know, cancer shouldn't exist. No one's done anything morally wrong to deserve cancer per se. It's just a way the world is broken in a fallen world. But then there's a third category and it's just limitations. Mm. You know, why do you have two eyes and not, you know, 60 eyes? I don't know. That's just how God... Eyes on the back of your head. (laughs) Eyes on your feet so you can watch movies while you're driving. I mean, right. I don't need three eyes to do that. I can just do it. It's like a skill. It's like a special skill. Right. So as soon as my car gets out of the shop uh, because it got totaled, I'll be back doing that again. Um, Have you seen this TikTok where the guy's like, (laughs) he's like, um, by the time it's 12 p.m., I've already had two days at that point. You've had one and I've had two. And then by the time it's 4 4 p.m., I've had four days because that's one, two, three, four days before 4 p.m. And so by that time, I've already doubled the amount of days that you've had in that same amount of time. So you multiply that by weeks, by months, by years. And I'm just like skyrocket ahead of you, dude. Have you seen this TikTok? It's like alpha chat. It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, like somehow he's broken the how time affects his brain and he can step outside of time and have five days in the courts of three. So funny. Is- yeah. Yeah, there's that tendency. We want to ignore our limitations and beat ourselves up when we're not in- invincible and impossible. And part of the downside of the existentialist project of just crafting meaning, you know, make meaning is that you forget like... <laughs> I actually can't do that. It's existential constipation. (laughs) (laughs) It's a real problem. God himself chooses to rest every seventh day. Mm. Think about that. If that is not an imperative to just chill sometimes and like let other people just chill, like take the pressure off. God who has no limitations whatsoever, he can just create with a word. And he even chooses to take a break. Yeah. You know what that means is your meaning and significance doesn't come from the amount of productivity you achieve. Sorry, Alpha Chad. Yeah. Yeah. And and it it goes back to what I was learning from Dr. Henry Cloud of the Boundaries.me podcast. That he actually has good works prepared and advanced for you to do, right? Like there's a universe of good for you to do and there's amazing potential and you can learn ballet and violin and whatever, but it's not going, that's not the thing that's going to give your life meaning. And that's not the criterion for you to be loved. Yes. That's just the beautiful, fun world that God designed for you to enjoy. Yes. It doesn't crush you. Yep. Absolutely. In fact, how you get good at things is by embracing your limitations. Mm, Yeah. To get good at piano or ballet, you say no to a million other things that might be really fun or enjoyable. You have to learn what you're capable of, embrace it in order to push yourself and do something good. Yeah. But anyway, in a Christian worldview, there's room for all of that. Yeah. 
in a meaningless, chaotic, existentialist worldview, there's no way to find the balance because we're not designed by anything and there's no one watching us who cares. There's no one who says, yeah, I saw you make that Egg McMuffin. Nice job. I mean, we can, but even existentialists realize, so like Jean-Paul Sartre wrote his famous play, Nausea. And in that play, the closing line is, if I'm not mistaken, he says, hell is other people. Because in that play, they're just trapped in a room observing each other for all time. There's no privacy. The play is called No Exit. Oh, thank you. It's called No Exit. Way to go. Thank you for correcting me on that. Yeah. Um, That's my theater background colliding with your philosophy philosophy background. And we're better together. We're better together. See, that's the point. The point is... (laughs) Other people are a blessing, but unless you uh, are willing to surrender to the way we're designed to be, they can be a curse as well in a fallen world. Hmm. And you can't Hmm. resolve your existential angst just by relying on other people because as the existentialists themselves pointed out again and again, you don't know if they exist Sometimes them observing you is hell. Sometimes it's it's heaven. It's sometimes it's what we want. It's catharsis. But none of it is big enough to solve the purpose and meaning that's meant to undergird the entire universe. Only God can do that. And without him, everything truly is meaningless. So, Casey, what is the meaning? Like, what meaning do you get from believing in God? I mean, that is the right question. It's, it's such a big question, but I, I think I would just rephrase it. It's like... um. It's like the foundation on which anything else that's meaningful is built. So actually, you're right. The way that question is phrased is as if you get to pick what you believe. What do I derive at the farmer's market of God? What would you like to and and how does it serve you best? But you, like you said before, meaning is discovered, not created. So I don't pick a religion based on what I think is going to give yeah. me a sense of meaning. I actually believe that Christianity is the way the world is, and I'm just a person living in God's world. And my meaning, my meaning comes from the fact that he says I'm meaningful. Yeah. He knit me together in my mother's room. He created good works for me to do in advance. He embedded in me his image. Yeah. And, and, and gave me the commission to subdue and multiply in the earth and to create gardens and cities and, and to cook and to, he, like, he is given us our meaning. Yeah. And a strong clue to uh, meaning is appetites. So like I get hungry and okay, well, there is such a thing as food. And that cycle, which <laughs> feels like dread is actually meant to create delight. Looking at eternity, for example, my friend Matthew and I were just reflecting on this. We were at a wedding together, which by itself is a beautiful reflection on life's ultimate meaning, right? Mm-hmm. There's a wedding coming mm-hmm. at the end of time and it's when Christ marries his bride, which is the church. It's one of the most beautiful, powerful metaphors. But we're also like, think of how much fun it is to just like go deep with one friend. Like you find something out about them that you had no idea. You have a hobby in common. Dude, I, I, we're both into chess right now. This is amazing. Like, let's get good at this. It's like <laughs> infinite. It's truly infinite. The depths and the breaths to which you can go with one good friend. Now add a third friend to that and it multiplies infinitely again. Because that third friend brings Mm -hmm. something new out in the both of you. Now multiply that by 8 billion people times an infinity of Mm. time, not as a blob of meaningless Play-Doh, but as rhythms, as seasons. Think of every Christmas comes around and you're like, yes. It's not like, oh my gosh, how many Christmases? No, we're designed for repetition and it's a beautiful thing. In fact, I'm just going to say this G.K. Chesterton quote. Yeah. 
please always say a G.K. Chesterton quote. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, mm. do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps huh. God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It might be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's really cool thought. There's a recipe for resolving your existential anguish. Well, Carlin, I do want to acknowledge one last point on this with our Christian uh -huh. worldview, and that's that it is not only okay, it's good to empathize with people who feel that the world is meaningless. And I just want to say that even as a Christian, even though I have this foundation, like I, I truly believe that God has created everything to be worthwhile, I still mm. gaze into the abyss sometimes, and I still mm. grapple with the fact that I'm going to die. Mm. You know, you know, you and I, we just lost our grandfather, mm. and Papa Bud was just like a wonderful man. He was filled with so much charm. His wit, we would always say he never made the same joke twice. He and literally never did. Till the day he died, he had a new joke day every day. <laughs> I saw him like a couple months before he passed away. And that's mm -hmm. sad. With him gone, there's a piece of the world that's gone forever. Or it feels like that, right? And, mm -hmm. and even though I believe in the hope of the resurrection, and I believe in eternal life, because Jesus rose from the dead, therefore we're all going to be resurrected to eternal life. It's like... I'm still mourning the loss of my grandfather. Mm -hmm. I'm still feeling like those sunny days by their pool in California are never going to come again while I'm alive. And there's something deeply heartbreaking about that. And so knowing that there's a way life should be actually gives us room for lament that it's not that way and helps us process those feelings of grief and find catharsis through that. So, so I just want to be clear. It's not like, hey, just be happy and joyful. It's like, yeah. Gosh, like in a world where God is is on the throne, there's room for it all. Yeah, I mean, right now is Lent. And um, Lent is a time embedded in the church calendar to really contemplate mortality, right? Like that's kind of the whole point is before Resurrection Sunday, before Easter, we spend time thinking about death. And it's funny, that article that I mentioned earlier, one of his suggestions to people who are trying to explore nihilism is to do a meditation on death and to have a mantra that says, this breath could be my last breath. And he's like, I know it sounds really scary, but like, give it a try. It's funny because eerily, that sentiment is, is uh, in Christianity, that there's actually a whole season where we're invited to as Christians contemplate death, contemplate mortality, and not to rush through to a happy Easter morning, but to kind of sit in it. What, what do you think, what does that serve? Like, why is that a part of Christianity? Oh man, yeah, the Bible is just chock full of people contemplating death because it forces us back to what's ultimately meaningful. But, you know, for Christians, we're looking at Jesus who at this time in his ministry started looking mm -hmm. forward to the cross, Right. And um, 
Jesus took on death. He was killed. He was God incarnate. There was no reason for him to die, but he died so that he could shatter the power of death for all of human beings. And the Bible says he's Mm -hmm. a first fruits of the resurrection. So Jesus rose from the dead. But to do that, he had to die. He had to tackle death like a human being in order to save human beings Mm -hmm. who are all bound for the grave. And he was sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane before he he said, my soul is filled with anguish. He was quoting Mm -hmm. David in the Psalms as he said that. And yeah, he looked deathful in the face. I think it not only does it give us empathy for those who are suffering, and therefore, through empathy, courage to rush into the line of fire, to rush into battle. We're not going to make a Garden of Eden when the zombie apocalypse is coming. We're going to save as many people as we can, hopefully. If you're, if you're obeying Jesus, that's what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be selfish. Hmm. So I think it creates empathy and courage. But yeah, I just think on a personal note, it... It prepares us for the inevitability of death that we're all going to taste. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. It's not about just being happy and ignoring death. It's funny because I think Christianity gets a bad rap for being just like a precious moments religion. Like, oh, sweetie, don't worry about death. Like, we're just, we're not even going to (laughs) think about it. We're not going to talk about it. Like, it's all going to be fine and happy clappy. And this is what will give you meaning. But Christianity, once again, is unflinching in looking at the most difficult problems. Yeah. There's really nothing off limits to talk about. And and if you've been in a church that's afraid to talk about something, just know that that's not how God is. Yeah. Like, he welcomes you to bring your most difficult questions to him. And he loves to help you with them. Like, he loves to lean in and... And he actually has real comfort for you. Carlin, I just, I want to add one more thing to this. And it, and it's just mm. like food for thought. What if the multiverse were real? Because this is a live question in philosophy right now. Like, yeah. What if we're just in one of infinite possible yeah. multiverses? I think it's so stupid. But okay, yeah. <laughs> it, it, well, yeah, because two things. One, we have zero evidence. And by definition, yeah. it's outside of our ability to to find evidence of the multiverse. So if you're going to make some significant life decision on the multiverse, please don't. And the one I'm thinking of is there's an apologetics argument for God's existence. That's the cosmological argument. Mm. Everything Mm -hmm. that begins to exist must have a cause. We know the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. Well, sometimes people punt to the multiverse and they're like, well, uh, either it's possible that other universes didn't begin to exist. They, they always existed. Uh, or, hey, we're one of like a million expanding, multiplying universes, right? And so therefore, we don't actually need God to right. solve that problem. Like Joy says, it's a statistical inevitability. Yeah. In no way should that be used as an argument for atheism. And yet I've noticed often is that in the multiverse, it's, yeah. it's godless chaos. I think it's just TV fodder. <laughs> It's both. I think it's both, right? We're trying to find a way to reconcile every culture in a world where everyone can watch every movie. And that's new. Actually, up until recently, you had to have someone mail you the reel, like a hard copy, and so you could play it in your movie theater. Yeah. Yeah, it's like now with the internet, we can watch what they're making in India and with Bollywood, like right now. You Um, can watch a live stream of somebody on the other side of the world. You could watch a live stream of an eagle sitting in its nest on the other side of the world. (laughs) 
<laughs> think about that. Bonkers. So I think it captivates our imagination because we feel like we're living in the multiverse in the age of the internet. It's like overwhelmed our sense capacities. We feel like we can be anywhere at all times, yeah. all at once, whatever. Yeah. But I was just going to add this. C.S. Lewis tackles the question of the multiverse in The Magician's Nephew. Oh. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If you're looking for a Christian sort of exposition of that concept, please read that book. It's fantastic. Dang. I never even would have drawn that connection. That's so cool. Well, someone pointed it out to me. That's not my original observation, but it is beautiful. So they have these magic rings, a gold one and a green one. And I can't remember which ring does what. Neither can they. But if you touch one of the rings, immediately you're transported to the world between the worlds. And there's these pools that you can jump into and go visit an entirely different Mm -hmm. universe. And what they find is actually not chaos, but order. Hmm. So when they enter the alternate possible universes, there's still brokenness, there's still sin, there's still that cosmic battle of good Uh versus evil Uh in everyone. Uh, Maybe there are somewhere that doesn't happen and it's just goodness, um, uh, but no free will, no choice. Therefore, people aren't choosing to do evil, something like that. But what we see, the point is there's order Mm. because Aslan too created these worlds. Yeah. And so when we hypothesize about the multiverse, we don't need to just picture instinctively chaos and amorality. You know what I mean? Like the absence of right and wrong. Right. It could be that there's a God behind everything who makes right right in every universe and wrong wrong in every universe and will never escape those kinds of concepts. They're eternal, right? It's just a a poverty of our imagination that we can only conceive of the multiverse as, you know, bloodletting and chaos. (laughs) It's just like how every Peter Parker, you know, has to like lose his girlfriend and betray his uncle. And that guilt drives him to become the Spider-Man in every universe that happens in one way or another. And in Narnia, the character that's the same in every universe is Aslan. One character that you kind of are like, well, wouldn't she be in every universe too? The White Witch. Mm. She's like the ultimate villain of that universe, but she's not a cosmic being. She's just a being from one created reality that's hopped into a couple others, but she's not transcendent the way that Aslan is. Yeah. We could go down that rabbit hole. Maybe we'll do a book study on the magician's nephew. That'd be fantastic. So this podcast hasn't really been about everything, everywhere, all at once. Just a few things somewhere for about an hour. (laughs) So true. (laughs) So true, bro. And yet we've covered an amazing amount of ground, you know? So yeah. in not talking about everything, everywhere, all at once the whole time, we kind of have talked about everything, everywhere, all at once for the whole time. We sure have. And just by saying everything, everywhere, all at once, you've officially talked about everything. Because by definition, everything is included in the word everything. Oh my gosh. Big brain. Big brain meme. Big brain meme. Classy Pooh Bear meme. (laughs) Can you, what are you like in the, in a multiversal version? Uh, Yeah. Multiversal Casey took the theater route instead of the like philosophy (gasps) route and Uh definitely was like a character at Disney World for a long time. Oh and, yeah. You know, who knows what he's doing now? Some amazing you were Jafar probably. at Disney. <laughs> so, did you say Jafar? Y- yeah. <laughs> I'd be Jafar. <laughs> Dude, that guy's goatee is is dope. I actually want yes. a Jafar goatee. Maybe in yeah. a multiverse I have one. What about you? In, What's Carlin's multiverse? In my multiverse, I am I get I get in a swimming pool and I never get out of it. I just love swimming pools and I just want to swim and swim and swim. Swim and swim. And I just could live in a swimming pool. And I actually am a creature. I'm a, actually I'm a singing dancing water kitty. 
Oh, that's right. Your your famous invention as a kid, <laughs> singing, dancing. It couldn't just be like you couldn't just pretend that you were a kitty. You had to be. It had to be like a singing, dancing, singing, dancing, water kitty. Water kitty. I I don't know why, but when I was a kid, that was like the ultimate thing anyone could be. That's the apex. She's sparkly. She's pink. She lives in the water. But she's a kitty. It's it doesn't make sense. But it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in any. Universe. It was an innovation for you because in your child brain you knew that cats don't like water yeah. but then you were like but wait what if, what they, if they did did <laughs> and i also then knew, they would be a, i think i instinctively knew kitty. that cats don't sing or dance but also <laughs> i don't know if you did it's a statistical actually... inevitability well carlin this has been a great podcast and um we didn't cover everything i think this movie might take some rewatches but i think we got to the i think we got to the heartbeat of it I think so too. Great job. All right, guys, we'll see you next time on another episode of Cinema Snorkel.